Will you please welcome to the stage our guest moderator, Grazia's style director, Paula Reed. Hi, everybody. It's so nice to see so many of you here. Thank you for coming. On behalf of Grazia, I'd like to welcome you to this session of Meet the Designer um, here at the Apple Store. At Grazia, we see it as part of our mission to give you inside access to the biggest names in fashion. So please remember to tell us what you think on Twitter afterwards at Grazia Live. Um, I feel it's almost redundant to introduce um, my guest today, but I will try and do it briefly. Um, of the leading designers in the world, more has been written about Tom Ford than just about any other. I did a quick Google yesterday and got 80 million results, which is twice as many as Karl Lagerfeld and about a third as many as Giorgio Armani. He is the man who made Gucci the most desirable label of the 90s. He took on the might of the French fashion establishment when he became creative director of YSL with Domenico de Sole. He transformed the Gucci group into a luxury goods conglomerate worth over $10 billion when he left in 2004, sheltering the talent of our own Alexander McQueen and Stella McCartney. And as if that is not enough for one lifetime, this overachiever made his public comeback with A Single Man, his first feature film, for which he won a list of nominations at least as long as a Gucci catwalk and a BAFTA for leading man Colin Firth. He made his return to fashion with his eponymous menswear label, which has given men a fighting chance on the red carpet alongside the girls. Um, women customers had to content themselves with sunglasses, fragrances and cosmetics until his triumphant return to the runway in 2010. For millions of fashion fans, he is the definition of sophistication and glamour. And yet, defying neat definitions, he confesses to feeling most at home on his ranch in Santa Fe and chose to spend his last big birthday on a wilderness trip with a few close friends. He's a great storyteller, he's charming company, you're in for a fantastic treat. But before I introduce you to him, I'd just like to show you a film of the world of Tom Ford.
Tom Ford, do you feel yes, like a fashion legend? No. I don't at all. And uh, no, I don't. You want me to give you a longer answer? I want a longer answer than that. No, I don't. And, you know, the only time... I'm kept very... My feet are really kept on the ground by Richard Buckley, who I live with, who I've been with for the 25 adorable, years. Adorable the adorable Richard, Richard Buckley, Buckley, though, who keeps me so grounded. I'm in a hole most of the time. So when I'm at home, I'm definitely not treated like a fashion legend. I don't think of myself that way. Occasionally, when I have someone in for an interview, you know, a young student or somebody that I'm interviewing for a new position, and I see their handshake, I realize, oh, you know, I maybe have this effect on people, but I, I don't think of myself that way. No, I don't think you can think of yourself that way. I think people that, that are compelled to achieve never really quite feel that they have achieved, and it drives you to keep kind of jumping through hoops. Okay. I think the moment you get to a place where you think, oh, I'm a fashion legend, or I'm a legend, or I'm a I legend at whatever I do, yeah. Yeah. then that's when you're no longer competitive and you're no longer thinking and you're no longer moving and that's when you you're essentially you know dead as what okay what so we'll doing. go back a bit we'll go back to the beginning because you were training to be an architect i was is that not right when yeah. you started but what saved you was there an aha moment well you know i realize now looking back that actually I am an architect. I mean, the thing that fascinated me about architecture was the idea of building something, making something, constructing something. Uh, it goes back to childhood. It goes back to kids, you know, playing with their blocks. But the, the thing that I love about fashion, I love fashion, I love clothes. That itself is architecture. A shoe is a piece of architecture. Of it is body. actually more architectural than a piece of clothing because it stands on its own. There is a vocabulary that has to relate. You know, if a proportion uh, here is a certain thing, then it means the heel proportion is that thing. And there's a vocabulary in the architecture of buildings. Uh, you know, I think, uh, I mean, uh, you know, if, if, if you have a certain kind of, if you're going to make a curved wall, the best thing to make it out of is not necessarily a, a rectangular brick. And then there's the building of a business, which is a different kind of architecture, because you not only have the clothes and the cosmetics and the, you know, but you're constructing it all, and it all has to have a uniform uh, reason for being, a vocabulary. There's also a, a practicality to architecture. Um, I remember one of my uh, instructors asking me one time in a project, I had made a door red. Why is this door red? Why are all the other doors black? And I said, well, because it's really pretty red. <laughs> wasn't a good enough answer. You know, if the door's red, what does it mean? Why? Why is it different than the other doors? Where does it go? So in everything I do, I ask myself those questions. You know, if I design something, I think, why? Who needs this? Where are you going in that? Okay. What are you doing in it? But you actually justify it in your head. It's not an instinctive thing. You've actually figured out a whole argument for it. Oh, it's, it's, it's probably a combination of intuition and something cerebral, which is kind of how I do everything. There is an intuitive feeling of, that's just not balanced. Why? What's okay. bothering me? Okay. What's bothering me about that? And then when you figure it out, you, 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 know, you realize, ah, yes, this is what's bothering me. Because there there's a fabulous story of um, you arriving in Gucci in the early days. And Don Mello, who was your boss at the time, said that there was a little bit of friction between you and Maurizio Gucci because he kind of wanted everything to be round and brown and you wanted everything to be square and black. Yeah, this is 
not really a true story, but but it's one of those things that's sort of turned into a, a it's story. A Tom Ford legend. M Maurizio, you know, uh, had a wonderful idea, and Maurizio was actually a terrific guy. He was the guy who wanted to restore Gucci to what it ha had been when he was a kid in the 50s and 60s, and and so he set out to do this. He was not a great businessman, um, unfortunately, and that was really the main problem. But in his mind, it was what it had been in that period, which was brown, which was round, which was and we were in the Very early, Italian, we were not in the early 90s yeah. when things were starting to shift. And in the early 90s, everything was black and it was angular and it was sharp. And, and so, yeah, the, my aesthetic was very different than his. He actually uh, tried to fire me at one point um, and did fire me. But at that point, the company was about to go bankrupt and he was removed. And I was the last remaining designer. <laughs> and uh, they decided they needed a designer to going, so I, I kept my job. But how that says something for your faith in your own vision, because that was a family company. Generations of family had run that company. And as a designer, you have to be able to stand your ground and say, no, this absolutely is what I believe in and this is right. Is there, do you ever doubt yourself? Of course, I doubt myself constantly. And in fashion, you have to doubt yourself up until the very last minute. Even if you've finished a collection and it's the night before you're going to show it, and you realize, oh God, that's so wrong. You have to throw it out. You have to get rid of it. You have to destroy it. It doesn't matter how you fix it, what you change, you have to change it. So you constantly doubting yourself. Uh, you know, you constantly have to question. However, when you do settle on something that just feels right, uh, you don't need to doubt yourself anymore. It's when you get to the point where you're no longer doubting that you know, okay, that's, that's the answer. Or at least that's the way I operate. Where did this kind of aesthetic develop? Because, you know, similarly, I, I don't come from a, a big city and you don't come from a big city. You kind of rolled in from Santa Fe into New York, didn't you? And I have this lovely image of escaped. you. Escaped. Kind of <laughs> I, I love of Santa Fe, but escape, yes. John Voigt in Midnight Cowboy somehow arriving. <laughs> No, I arrived in an Armani jacket, Calvin Klein jeans, okay, and cowboy boots okay. because I'd been reading GQ 1977, All right, and that was the look, <laughs> and I was prepared for New York. Oh, no, um, my, my myth Although the Calvin Klein uh, jeans, although they were very chic at the time, but they, you know, maybe they were a little tight, but <laughs> that helped my career, too. I'm sure <laughs> the, the fact that they were a little tight. Um, <laughs> But where did that aesthetic develop then? Were you kind of, as a child, were you I, kind of I reading think, magazines? You, know, and you can, you know, I have a, a niece and her first word was shoe. And, you know, she has a natural, this is just, this, she was born that way. Okay. So I think you're either born, uh, you know, oral, and I mean oral with an A and not oral. Some people are born oral as well. Uh, or you're visual. Yeah. And, and then that can go in a lot of different directions. And... And if, if it tends towards uh, uh, fashion or, or, or uh, glamour, then, you know, you develop a, a different sensibility. Yeah, okay. But then moving to New York, you know, I, I was exposed to a lot of great things growing up, even as a kid in, in Santa Fe, which has a certain sophistication in a, in a kind of hippie uh, way. And so I was exposed to, to different aesthetics, which as an, uh, as an adult have come out in my work at different times. But you were desperate to get out. You were driven to get out of there. I've always done things. Uh, I knew I had to get out. 
Just like I knew I had to make a movie. Just like I knew I, you know, I, I, I uh, am compelled to do certain things. And I was terrified, and I didn't really know quite what to expect, but I knew it was the place for me to go, and that I had to leave. Do you think, in order to succeed, not just in the fashion business, but just to succeed generally, is, is it talent or hard work? Um, it's a combination of both, but I would say it's slanted towards hard work. Uh, slanted towards obsession. There are many designers who have much greater talent as a designer than I do, but they may not have my drive, they may not work as hard, they may not have the focus, the desire. I mean, you have to have a talent, because in the end, you can have all those things, and if the pair of pants you make don't make someone's butt look good, they're not going to buy them. Yeah, so sure. you have to have the talent to be able to make something that people want. But then you also have to have the drive and the desire to, uh, you know, sometimes people are successful because maybe they don't have that drive, but they have someone around them who takes their raw talent and pushes them. But what you often see is when that other person steps away, their career can collapse, yeah. even though yeah. their talent may be immense. There must be an ability to take hard knocks as well, though. Oh, you have to take, you have to really be tough. Fashion is, uh, I think, I mean, I haven't been involved, obviously, in every industry in the world. I can tell you it is harder than the film industry, in my opinion. Really? Fashion, you have to have a number one top hit. If you like, were a, mu a musician every three months, you have to just constantly be able to crank out hit after hit after hit after hit on demand and on a very tight calendar. Um, I, I mean, in the and last year and a half, season. I've come back. I've lost it. Um, I've, you know, come back again. It's, it's, you know, it's really as good as your last collection. And then in the end, I think you're judged on the cumulative uh, work that you've produced over a, a period of time. And do bad reviews still hurt? Of course they do. Because you, uh, you of course they do. You've told me before that. Oh you know, my you God! Of course they do. To read them, but they of still course they hurt. do because you're. And often a bad review is right. And. Uh, Th those hurt in a different way because you know in your heart where you're reading, oh God, yes, they're totally right, totally right. Um, but yeah, sure, of course they hurt. They hurt because you're quite raw, because they come out the day or two days after what you've done, when you haven't been able to um, uh, sort of recover from it. So you're exhausted and you, you can't really see what you've created clearly because you've just created it. Um. Have you had a proudest moment that you can tell us about? I've had, sorry, I've had many uh, proud moments. I would say my proudest moment was <laughs> December 31st, uh, 2011, my 25th anniversary with Richard Buckley. Um, being with the same person for 25 years, I'm very proud of. And I have to say we're happier today and have a better relationship Fantastic. than we did 25 years ago. And we've been through a lot together. And um, professionally, my proudest moment was probably the Venice Film Festival, when my film was screened, because it's a surreal experience, I did not know what to expect. I mean, you're in this gigantic theater with, that seats at least a thousand, and you're all lined up, and at the end of the film, they either boo or they applaud, and the entire audience just turned and faced us and stood and applauded for you know, more than 10 minutes. It was. I kind of almost don't even remember it, but I was, I was very proud of that film. 
Do you know what? I think that's probably a good moment if we actually show a little bit of the movie. I'm sure everybody here has seen A Single Man, but just if we refresh. Probably not. But I am do, sure do they Do try have. to see it. I'm sure they have. <clears throat> Can we do that now? This is so nice. Lying over here. Don't you ever miss this? But we could have been to each other. Having a real relationship and kids. Jim. No, I mean a real relationship. Jim, let's be honest. What, what you and Jim had together was wonderful, but wasn't it really just a substitute for something else? So is that what you really think of all these years? Hmm? You think Jim was just some kind of, some kind of substitute for real love? It's not a substitute for anything. Do you understand? And there is no substitute for Jim. Anywhere! And by the way, what is so real about your relationship with Richard? He left you after nine years. Jim and I were together for 16 years, and if he hadn't died, we'd still be together. Did it take you a long time to figure out that that was the story that you wanted to make? Did you reject lots of others before you came yeah, to Yeah, you one? know, when I, when I uh, opened an office in Los Angeles and I've had a house there for a long time, I have a lot of friends in the entertainment industry and I made it known I wanted to direct a film, I received lots of scripts. Because of shaving G's in girls' pubic hair and all sorts of things in my career, Gucci, most of these screenplays were sort of contemporary versions of nine and a half weeks. Um, <laughs> Or lots of, you know, slapping Nudity. with, you know, big breasts. <laughs> and and, and uh, not at all the kind of story that I wanted to tell because people didn't know that side of my character, my personality. And I was driving to my office one day from my house and I realized I was thinking about George, this character. And I had read this book when I was in my early 20s, living just a few blocks from where my office is in Los Angeles as an actor. I was an actor at that point in my life. And I'd read this book, and I had really fallen in love with this character, George. And uh, I later then met Christopher Isherwood, who'd written A Single Man, um, and became obsessed with him, read every book and everything that he'd ever uh, written. And, and uh, I realized, you know, I think about this character all the time. Got back to my office, picked up the book, started to read it, and I thought, this is it, this is it. I just had a feeling. Even though the book has no plot, George is not going to die, he's not going to commit suicide, um, it has no plot, it's an internal monologue, but yet the substance and, and the point of the book was what spoke to me. I went out to meet with his uh, boyfriend, who is uh, still alive, Don Bacardi, uh, who I had also known, and convinced him to give me the rights uh, to the book. Then I spent a year and a half writing the screenplay because I realized that a story without a plot is tough to make into a film. And I had to come to terms with uh, altering the work substantially. Uh, and, and Don was the one who really encouraged me to do that. I, I, I had dinner with him one night and I said, I'm really struggling trying to figure out how to turn this into a movie. And he said, you know, Chris felt that a book was a book and a film was a film and you should make it your own find out what, what speaks to you about this book and, and you know, bring that out in the film. And then I, I changed the plot and wrote the existing screenplay that turned into the film. Is there another movie in, in you? I hope so. <laughs> um, yeah, there are actually three projects I'm working on now. One is an original screenplay I've finished. I could start working on it, except I started this little project called Women's Ready to Wear. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> 
our business is really <laughs> going very absorbing. well. So yes. I can't complain about that, but it's going uh, so well, it's taking all my time right now. So. And luckily you can, as you once said to me, fit in a movie in your summer holidays. <laughs> I can, although not this summer. Um, not this summer. Yeah, we, you know, Italy shuts down for a month. So if you're in the fashion industry and you produce everything in Italy, there is a sort of month in August when you can't work the way you normally work. So to shoot a film, I could take five or six weeks. You really can't do anything else if there are any filmmakers in the audience. You know this when you're actually shooting. And then I could try to edit half a day, do fittings half a day, edit half a day, do fittings <laughs> half a day, uh, you know, for six months after that and finish the film. At least this is how it's going to work in my mind. Although I made a single man while I had already started the company. We were making eyewear, we were making fragrance, and we had started menswear, and we'd opened a few stores, uh, and I managed to make that, so. Tom is the only man I know who really multitasks like a mum. <laughs> That's a compliment, by the way. Um, Thank you. <laughs> But there must have been a point when, after Gucci, you thought, God, I could just retire now. I did. Uh, I did think I was going to retire. Um, I live in Los Angeles right above a golf course. <laughs> Believe it or not, I actually play golf. Um, I played golf as a kid. Everyone does in Texas. And uh, I thought, you know, I'm not going to do fashion anymore. I'm just going to go to my ranch, ride my horses, play golf, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it lasted a couple of months, and I was bored out of my mind, drinking way too much, and it was not good, and uh, I realized I needed to go back to work. And plaid But the great thing is I never have to daydream about retiring. I think most people in the world, I've been fortunate enough to hit that moment where I really could not work for the rest of my life. And I think most people fantasize, you know, one day when I retire, when I retire, when I retire, and of course, insurance companies know that Many times when you retire, you die within two to four years. And so my only advice to everyone is don't retire. Find something you love. I, I want to keep working until the day I drop dead. It's In fact, you know, Cary Grant was doing something just like this. I'm not comparing myself to Cary Grant. Went backstage, had a headache, and died. So I hope that doesn't happen to either us, of us, Paula. No. But, you know, you work, you go backstage, I've got a headache, you're dead. I don't want to be known Great. as the woman who finished off who killed Tom me? Ford. No, exactly, know. exactly. What's your ultimate career goal then? Are you somebody who works to goals? Do you have five-year plans? You know, I used to have five-year plans and ten-year plans and all those kinds of things. Now I have daily plans. Um, I mean, I have longer plans. But my daily plan and my daily struggle, like most of us, I think, is to be happy. Um, I turned 50 this year, and not that that's old. Um, thank you. But it really did change my way of thinking, and I don't think many of you are 50. I can tell by your faces you're a lot younger. But it also really changed my way of thinking. If someone invites me to dinner, I think, God, do I really want to spend one of the, you know, so many thousands of dinners I have left in my life having dinner with this person? No. Oh, gosh, I can't, you know. And it, it, did, it did change the way I do things. Okay. So you know how much I wanted to be here today. I'm hugely flattered. I'm serious. Um, now, tonight, because your schedule takes you all over the world, you're flying around more on a plane than your feet are on the ground, I suspect. But you are back for Men's Fashion Week. And yes. Tonight you are attending a reception at St. James's Palace with yes. the Prince of Wales. Yes. And Tom, you have been fantastically supportive of British fashion, British fashion designers. And I just wanted to ask you a kind of real kind of nerdy fashion question. Is there a city in your experience of all of these cities in the world that particularly fosters young talent? And here, which one? here, London. Why? Um, 
Well, a few reasons. Not, we don't make money out of it. No, you don't, and that's the problem uh, with with uh, uh, fashion in England because this is where the talent comes from. You know, you, you go to, to to Paris, you go to Milan, and the design studios are just filled with uh, English, British uh, um, uh, design assistants. But yet, and I can't quite figure out why in this country the fashion industry as itself hasn't been able to support that talent and, and keep it here. Uh, I moved my design studio when I was at Gucci to London. A, because I love London and I wanted to spend more time here and live here. I'd been living in Paris and living in Milan for a long time. I wanted to live in a place where I could speak my native language daily and, uh, and I love London. But also, most of my assistants were English, so it was a very easy move to transfer my design studio from Florence and Milan to London. And I, I still find it the most inspirational city. I think it, it's possibly a history of uh, eccentricity. This is a place where individuality and eccentricity in clothing in particular is admired and is respected. There are more fancy dress balls uh, <laughs> in this country. And I got in trouble once by saying that I was the only man I knew in Britain never to have been in drag. And somebody <laughs> then wrote about this in the newspaper. I've never been in drag and I don't know what he's saying. He's an American, he should go back home. But what I meant was that Actually, most of my straight British male friends occasionally <laughs> go to a party where they get themselves done up. There's a kind of... In a dress. A joy. <laughs> well, it also comes from drinking a lot, too. You know? I mean, I've lived in quite a few countries, and I have to say, drinking here is a, you, you drink. So when you drink, you tend to, you know pick that up and put it on your head and, <laughs> and you know, you, you create fashion. So it's something that's admired here. Americans are afraid of style. You know, remember America was founded by the Puritans who fled, you know, the UK and wore very and stern, little, strict, and too much style in America is considered kind of bad thing. That's changing. Uh, you know, now it's... Uh, totally different, really globally, we're unfortunately seeing a, a sort of breast implant style that's taking over the world. No, but Hannah, I was going to say, listen, I am so aware that you all want to ask questions and I'm hogging Tom here, but I've just got a couple more. And one of them is, you seem to stand almost as a King Canute with your kind of hand against the tide of casual wear. I mean, you take great pains in how you arrive, how you look, and everything is just so yes kind of and elegant. No. And yet there is a tide of jeans and trainers out there. Does totally, that absolutely. You? Well, it's one reason that I think a lot of people have switched off of fashion. And I think that one reason we've switched off of fashion is because of runway shows. And I don't know whether you were going to ask me this That was or my not. last question. But um, I, when I came back to fashion with a women's collection this time and a men's collection, I decided not to do runway shows. Because when you do a runway show, you have to amp things up in a way so that they read from a great distance, so that they are designed for photography rather than for a consumer. So you can exaggerate things to the point where they don't actually function in real life for most people's lives. And what I wanted to do was create clothes for real people. Quit taking those pictures. Clothes <laughs> for real people. And that's about you know the beauty of the fabric, the way it's stitched, the details. And those kinds of things don't hold up on a runway. They're great for critics they don't necessarily work for the customers. And I think that's one reason that so many people in the world have switched off a of fashion. They look at it as a spectator sport. They want to see what everyone's wearing and how it looks, but then they put on their T-shirt and their jeans. I am actually extremely casual in certain environments. Um, you know, in a city, 
one of the reasons I like living in London, I like the formality of it as compared to the formality of, of America or informality of America. I like putting on a suit. I like putting on a tie. When I'm in the country, I wear a t-shirt and jeans. If I'm going to the beach, I wear... Oh, that's you good know, to know. It, so I, I think there's an appropriate thing, and I don't mean everyone needs to wear a suit in London, but also when you're in a public place with a lot of other people, you inflict yourself on them. You know, we have these beautiful design buildings, and you're thinking, and then all these people who look like hell. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're inflicting yourself, and there used to be this pride of, I'm going out in the world, I should, you know, make everything look as good as it can by looking my best, and by, it's a, it's a show of respect, by, you know, you know, maybe a lot of you are thinking, oh, he's so full of it, but, no, but this, is, this is how I feel, is that it's a show of respect um, to other people who have to look at you. <laughs> you should try to look <laughs> as good as you can look and help make the scenery look good and, you know. Hi. Um, Hi. I just wanted to ask you, so what helped you shape yourself into a business person? Because I feel like it's not like you went to business school, right? No, no that's an interesting so, question. I think, like, in this day and age, like, we're starting to have a lot more startup energy and startup tech companies and all these different types things and I was just wondering like was it kind of observing businesses from where you were as a designer or no. did you kind of instinctively move to that role because you're more it's innate it's a survival uh, mechanism I mean my first job in fashion was on 7th Avenue I, I saw designers around me if the little network collection they designed didn't sell they were fired the next day they were escorted out walked out of the building um, and, you know, you don't have that so much in Europe, but immediately, very quickly, you learn to survive. So you start thinking, okay, how do I make sure my thing sells? How do I make sure my, you know, so it's, a, it's a survival. I mean, common sense is not common. It's very rare. So it's also some, it's common sense. You know, it's, uh, it's I, I don't know. But, uh, of course, as you move through life, you know, there's certain terminology, you know, EBITDA and what's the value of your company, it's the multiple <laughs> currently traded on the stock exchange for a similar, pro you know, times your EBITDA, you know, that kind of stuff. You, of course, you learn, you pick up the language and, and you start to learn how to manipulate it and how to use it, but the base thing that drives you to that is a kind of common sense. EBITDA, I've learned something today, I don't know what that is. Earnings before income tax amortization. At, earnings Fine. before income tax amortization. And <laughs> but deduction is amortization. Uh, um, you must also have come across that thing. That's not the way we do things here. You must have heard that from consultants <coughs> and experts and all kinds of, of people. No? No. No? Okay. But what do you mean? Well, I'm just thinking that, that the way that you became successful was not necessarily in the kind of textbook Harvard Business School kind of way. Actually, I am a course at Harvard Business School. Did you? No, I didn't take one. There is a course to on study. You? Yes. How uh, fabulous. To study how at Dominico. There's two. There are two. There's a Gucci course okay. and there's a the success of and how we rebuilt Gucci. It okay. is actually a course taught. Sorry, Pro I don't mean to sound like an Proof. asshole. Proof. Proof. <laughs> does sound like Pro uh, an no, asshole. fantastic. I don't mean to sound like an asshole. <laughs> You set your own precedent. Um, can we get a, a microphone over here in the middle? Yes, kind of favoring this side woman of the room over here. She needs a microphone. <laughs> I'm so sorry, Tom. That's okay. Um, it was nice but looking I'm at very you excited so of, uh, you know, meeting you here. I'm come from Chile, so um, it's not a good chance of meeting you. Uh, On the ski slopes in Chile. Here in London. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been in Chile? Have you been to Chile? 
No. Oh, no. So my question is, um, I'd like to know uh, if you see any sort of uh, market in Latin America for your fashion, uh, because certainly we love your movie, but in terms of fashion, and if you know, two questions, if you know something about any uh, uh, fashion creators uh, there in Latin America, what do you know about Latin American fashion? I don't what know do a think? lot about Latin American fashion designers, I have to say, but yes, there is a, a very big market for what we do and what we did at Gucci in Latin America. Um, you know, we, were, we had a Tom Ford boutique in, in uh, Deslu in... Um, Uh, Sao Paulo. We also have uh, lots of Latin American customers who travel to Miami to buy our things, and we're in the process of expanding our store network. So, of course, Latin America is obviously a, a, a tremendous market for us. But no, I don't know much about Latin American fashion designers. I don't think most of us do. Which doesn't mean that there are not great things happening in Latin no, America. I was just Culturally, curious. of course, we know historical Latin America. I mean, you know, in terms of, of you know, knitwear from, uh, you know, Peruvian knitwear or, or traditional costumes from Colombia or, you know, those things are references that one as a fashion designer often researches and pulls. So, of course, you know, historical clothing from Latin America is part of probably most fashion designers' mental file. It would have surprised me if you, but I wanted to know. I think Thank it's, you. It's the new frontier for luxury, though, isn't it? That is one uh, of the great... Well, any booming economy happens to be the new frontier for luxury, so, of course... Uh, Latin America is yes. a great focus. <coughs> is there uh, any more questions over... Yeah. There oh. you are. What is the most challenging part of the creative process? Creating on demand. Because if you're a creative person... Creativity comes naturally to you, but it might come to one month and not necessarily come to a great idea for a few more months. But you have a calendar. The thing about fashion that people don't realize, it is incredibly repetitive. I can tell you what I'm doing on March 21st, 2013, and I'm not kidding. I have a calendar for 2013, because every year the shows are on these dates, which means that every year you know, your collection has to arrive on those dates, which means that every year your fabrics have to arrive on that date, and to do that they have to be ordered in this date, and to have your sketches in on that date so that you can have this fitting, that fitting, and that fitting so the clothes can be ready on this date. And That never changes. It is relentless. You don't even get to finish one collection before you have to start the next one because they now overlap so that there's a flow of merchandise into the stores so the customers can shop every two months and go in and find something new. So being creative on demand. Because sometimes you just not you just can try, but you don't It's have a new there. idea. And you have to on October 14th. You have to have 60 new ideas to hand into the factory. And you might not. I wanted to know, did you find it like hard to differentiate suits, suits and stuff? Because obviously it's like, to, to normal people, suits look the same. So like, how did you differentiate yeah, your brand? reinventing the suits. So well, when you, when you start your own brand, you have to turn inwards and you have to, you basically sell yourself to the world. You have to say, well, what is it about my personality that's different or individual? I like big lapels. I've never liked small lapels. They feel sort of sad to me like you didn't have enough fabric to do that <laughs> with. Um, I like the way that they make my body shape. So I've always tended towards that. So, okay, I'm making a jacket, I'm making a suit, big lapels. That's, you know, then you think, what kind of materials do I love? What fabrics, what colors, what sort of interiors? What, and all of that then starts to become the DNA of your brand. Every good brand has a strong personality and the personality of the creator of that brand speaks through it. You know, Mucha Prada is the intelligent 
fashion designer. Donatella Versace is the sexy fashion designer. I'm the sexy fashion designer. Halston was the slick, minimal American, uh, you know, Studio 54 fashion designer. Giorgio Armani is, you know, everyone has their own, you know, Yves Saint Laurent was the Proustian, fragile, uh, drug-addicted, um, <laughs> Uh, you know, that, that, but that was also the image of the brand. He was an artist. And, and those things, those characteristics of your personality define your brand, set it apart from other things. And, and so you have to look in at yourself and you sell yourself, in a sense, to the world. So the person is really, because you really are so closely identifiable with your brand. It is all about... Well, I am, because also I'm starting my brand. You know, most established brands, the creators are dead. Um, so they're not in their own ads. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm just starting. And so I am very closely related and obviously making all those decisions and setting the DNA for the brand. Okay. We got another, because I'm just slightly aware Tom's got a date with Prince Charles. Um, not a date. Well, <laughs> not in the biblical sense, anyway. Over here. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Selma. I'm from Saudi Arabia. It's very nice meeting you. I just want to ask, what inspired you to make the oud in your uh, perfume, perfume collection? Oud. Mm. The wood? To make the oud? oud. Well, yes. the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. Seriously, 25% of our perfume business is in the Middle East. I love strong fragrances, and most of our customers in the Middle East also love strong fragrances, and we have a tremendous business, and the oud wood uh, directly came from, from inspiration of the Middle East. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you. Behind you. Hello, my name's Luke. Um, hello. The, you, you're obviously you've incredibly driven, as you've shared with us. Um, you also seem very incredibly restless and eternally curious. Um, how, it's, a, mine's, it's a question about learning. When you're learning a, uh, a new creative pursuit, how, how far down do you dig and how much do you uh, rely on, on your team and your collaborators to um, support you in those, in those pursuits? Because I know you've done opera as well. Um, as well as filmmaking, and obviously these are all very different um, worlds to operate in. First of all, I'm only curious on demand, meaning that I'm not necessarily naturally curious. If I decide I want to do something, then I become an expert at it, and I just go into it, and I want to learn every little thing about it, but I don't just sort of go around necessarily looking at everything, um, much to the chagrin of my partner, Richard, who wishes I did that more. Uh, uh, in, in terms of collaborating with other people, one of the things that's important when you're a director, whether it's a director or a creative director, is to have a vision. You have to have something to say, but then you have to hire and surround yourself with the most creative people that you possibly can. You have to create an environment that brings out their best and makes them feel as free to give you the best that they can. Now then, you have to also edit that, guide, guide that so that it, it fulfills your ultimate vision. But uh, in that way, collaboration is uh, absolutely necessary because a lot of times other people think of better ideas than you would have thought of yourself. On that happy note, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks.